CPS sets April 19th as a return date for high school students, but the Chicago Teachers Union says not so fast. And hearings starting this week will inform how Illinois Democrats will draw maps for the state legislature and Congress. The time for an end to gerrymandering is now so that we're not saddled with another 10 years of maps that stifle competition and suppress voters' choices. Crane's government reporter A.D. Quigg joins the podcast today to talk about what's at stake as a remap like no other gets underway. So why is this remap so different? One, because the census was so unprecedented during COVID that it has completely changed the schedule for what a remap typically looks like. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, March 17th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. A remap like no other starts this week. I'm joined now by Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg, here to talk that over. Okay, so A.D., set the stage for what's going on and what is at stake. So this is a census nerd's dream. We love the remap. It's like if you love political data and you love the census, you love the remap. It's high stakes, really complicated, fun and interesting to follow. So why is this remap so different One, because the census was so unprecedented during COVID that it has completely changed the schedule for what a remap typically looks like. So normally, states will get the data they need to begin redrawing the lines of various districts, including congressional districts and also state House and Senate districts. Um, They would normally get that data shortly after the census wrapped. But because the census was delayed and so overwhelmed by COVID, we are not going to get the data that we need to make maps until September 30th. And September 30th is well past the state's deadline to have a map decided by June 30th. So we are going to be working with either incomplete or slightly old or just different data to try to draw these lines. So that's one reason why it's unprecedented. The other reason is it's a new crop of political players kind of calling the shots. So we have a new uh, Senate president, Don Harmon, we have a new Speaker of the House, Chris Welch, and they, at this point, are the guys in charge of getting this process started. So the timing is weird, the people are new, and we're very close to this next round of elections. Part of the reason the the census schedule getting thrown off was such a big deal was because if we don't know what the lines of the districts look like, it makes it very difficult for people to gather signatures to run for office or to even know what district they're eligible to run in. So this whole process is going to start kicking off this week. Um, Later today, there's going to be a redistricting committee hearing where we're kind of going to get the lay of the land. But then the next few months are going to be kind of feverish, uh, a combination of hearings, figuring out what data we're going to be using, and also who wins and loses when the lines of the maps get drawn. 
And so deadline-wise, how is that going to work, given that we've gone past the deadline when we should have had that data, given the pandemic? How will that work in terms of uh, such a tight turnaround and working on incomplete data? So I spoke with uh, Senate President Don Harmon yesterday, who is starting this hearing process today, and he suggested but didn't say that Illinois would probably be using American Community Survey data, which is data from 2019, he says it's it's been a pretty good predictor of what final census numbers would look like, but he left the door open to if we do get those final census numbers on September 30th and they're they're wildly different, they could retool the districts based on what that data is. We're going to find out more later this afternoon about the data they're using and the limitations of using perhaps that old data. Part of the reason people were so excited for this new census, I don't know if excited is the right term, but we have been watching as these annual census updates come, these American Community Survey updates come, um, we have a sense of how much Black population Illinois has lost and the growing Latino population in the state. But the census data that we get every decade is far more detailed and presumably up to date. Again, this goes back to how weird that last census was. Uh, I know you and I talked a few times about um, how difficult and unprecedented the collection process was. Uh, we were in the middle of COVID. They, uh, census takers basically delayed going door to door in person because of the perceived danger. This is also the first year they were collecting answers online. So it would be one thing if the data was just late. It's another thing that the data is late and also collected in a brand new way and also collected in the middle of a pandemic. So it's just like a ton of uncertainty around the data itself. Um, Another that June 30th deadline is important to keep in mind, because if lawmakers don't agree and pass a map before that date, it goes to a bipartisan commission that's basically for Democrats, for Republicans who are working together on a map. And it's very rare for them to to agree. And I guess the important ultimate thing to remember is these maps very often get challenged in court. So kind of no matter what happens in the next few months, it's very likely this is all going to end up in court anyway. You referenced this, but I was thinking back to when we talked at the end of 2019, kind of doing a year year in review and looking ahead to 2020, obviously we had no idea the pandemic was about to be a thing, but you know, this was a big thing that you named being on your plate in 2020, just to kind of underscore how big a deal this is. That was in your top three things to watch in the year ahead. Maybe because I'm a nerd, politically and census wise, like I'm just fascinated by that data and the process of collecting it and also like what new technology gets developed during the census. I was excited about it in general, just because it's like, this only happens once every 10 years. And the way these districts are drawn resonates for a really long time. So like if you live in a city that gets divvied up between four districts, it's a different story than um, having a strong district where you're all voting in one place. So this has, from a technical perspective, it's interesting, but it's even more interesting from a political perspective because of who, who wins and who loses and who is in control of how these things turn out. So like a big, a big thing I was thinking in 2019 was what's Mike Madigan going to do with this map? And now Mike Madigan's gone. And it's, it's, there's so much up in the air and uncertain, and it, it resonates for a long time. The other thing I'm thinking about is um, we still do not have a sense of how many congressional seats Illinois might lose. We know we have lost population compared to other states. Uh, there's a possibility that we lose two seats. And then you need to think about who loses as a result 
of us losing one seat. Because Democrats are in power uh, in the House, the Senate, and the governor's office, this map will be drawn to benefit Democrats. That's typically how this works. But you wonder what the calculus is of where they think they can win and where they might lose and how racial demographics play into this as well. So something I'm looking at and wondering about is, will Democrats maybe uh, draw a map that gets Adam Kinzinger out or that that gives him a a lower chance of winning? Or do they go after a representative like Rodney Davis? Do they work to protect all of their 13 Democratic incumbents, like vulnerable people, especially like Lauren Underwood and Sherry Bustos? There's just like a lot of calculus at play. And we haven't even talked about what this means for the Chicago ward remap and what this means for uh, the Cook County board remap. That's a little bit later down the line. There's a lot at stake for minority representation, for political power, and for people's relationships as a result of this going forward, because these things get get messy pretty quick. And you could make interesting friends or really bad enemies as a result of how you approach the remap process. Indeed. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about both wards and the Cook County remap of what could be at stake here for that. So similar to the state, there has been a push from good government folks to have um, an independent remap committee basically draw these draw these things up. My name is Madeline Dubeck, and I'm the executive director of Change Illinois, a nonpartisan nonprofit working for improved ethics and efficiency in Illinois government and elections. Officials have been pretty cagey about how much independence they want in a remap process like this. The people of Illinois understand that we can't have honest government and hold politicians accountable if we don't have truly competitive elections. We should start to end corruption by ending gerrymandering where it begins when the maps are drawn. The Chicago remap is a microcosm in a way of what the state legislature remap will look like. Um, In a sense, how how do the people in power continue to draw maps that allow for strong uh, minority representation, so representation of Black and Latinx uh, neighborhoods, while keeping harmony, I guess, is a way to, is a way to think about it. Um, even in the last remap, there was some thought that there there would be a, lo- a loss of black wards because of a loss of black population and a, and a gain in uh, in Latinx wards. It's unclear what that number will be, but that's a really tricky balance. The other thing is uh, community continuity. So there are a lot of neighborhoods in Chicago that are purposely carved up between several wards, which makes it difficult to have like a unified community voice. And if you're living in a neighborhood, it's kind of difficult to know which person you need to go to to get solutions. So there's there's a push to um, unify neighborhoods in certain wards and make it so wards aren't so zigzaggy. Uh, the one that everyone kind of points to is the second ward, Alderman Brian Hopkins ward, which he says is shaped like a bike, but some people say it's shaped like a lobster. Whatever shape you think it looks like, it is an insane shape. It's pretty crazy looking. So I'll be interested to see if if they're prioritizing making wards uh, more compact to accurately represent what one community actually looks like, and then how they balance representation of Black and Latinx people, and whether we create a new predominantly Asian ward, which has been a push uh, for some time. And this is the opportunity to finally do it. And then what about political implications for the Pritzker administration? 
Oh, it's tough. So I, I spoke with Jason Berrickman, who is a, a state senator, a Republican, who says, you know, on the campaign trail, Governor Pritzker spoke a lot about the importance of non-lawmakers drawing this map, that it would increase trust. It would be impossible for lawmakers to draw districts that benefited themselves and their allies. But he has not spoken up very much about the remap of late. Now that we're starting to set dates and hearings, I'll be interested to see what the governor says. If he does insist on an independent commission in some way, how that's accomplished legislatively will be interesting. Um, Some folks might remember there was a push to have a question on 2020 ballots to have an independent redistricting commission. But because of COVID, folks essentially ran out of time to do it. But if the governor presses this, it could be a big flashpoint with lawmakers who, number one, will always want to protect themselves and their allies, but number two, think that having some of their own control over this process ensures that Black and Latinx districts can be protected. There is some fear that if you turn this over to an independent uh, commission, those folks might not know best what is happening on the ground. So I'll be anxious to see where Governor Pritzker kind of stakes his claim on this remap effort and how lawmakers respond to that. And of course, all of this is happening before basically his reelection bid kicks off for the 2022 race uh, when he really needs uh, as many political allies as he can get. I would normally at this point ask you what you're going to be keeping an eye on as this story keeps going, but I think all of it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much all of it. Um, I'm interested in, in the data aspect, the political aspect, the timing aspect. There's a lot of ground to cover. And then what it's like for for folks on the ground who are interested in this too. Are there going to be folks on the ground interested in this? What kind of engagement is there going to be on the community level? Um, and how much do lawmakers actively engage folks on the community level? Um, I spoke to a good government person yesterday who said whenever the first final draft of a map comes out, they give people enough time to really take a look at it and consider it and basically give lawmakers a chance to, to hear from people whether people that live there think the map stinks. That was a big thing that happened in California. Basically, uh, the California mapping folks came out and said, here's our map. And people came back and said, we hate your map. Here's how you can fix it. Um, so I'll be anxious to see what the what the engagement part of this looks like. We know there's going to be four dozen hearings between the House and the Senate on this. Um, I'm curious to see if people show up and if their input gets taken seriously. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk it through today. Sure thing. Coming up, the Cubs strike out in a play to move a foul ball suit into arbitration. And that could undermine a practice that many teams use to avoid litigation. We'll talk more about that and other stories right after this. Imagine if you had a Google Maps for your business, visualizing your path, guiding you to your destination while constantly optimizing your route to avoid accidents or traffic jams. Salonis's execution management system does exactly that. It pulls data from your existing systems, visualizes any business process, and automatically recommends or automates actions to take to achieve your business goals. Companies like Uber, Dell, Siemens, and L'Oreal are using Salonis to improve their processes and maximize their company's potential. Visit salonis.com slash get dash started to learn how your company can unlock its full potential. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
Chicago Public Schools said it's aiming to reopen school buildings for high school students on April 19th, pending ongoing negotiations with the CTU. Under the plan, CPS buildings would be open for students of all grades for the first time since the pandemic closed school buildings across the country a year ago. In a statement, CPS leaders described talks with the union as productive. But later in the evening, the union responded, saying it had yet to agree to any reopening dates for high schools and that its negotiating team lacked critical data, including numbers on teacher vaccinations. Meanwhile, families have until week's end to let the school district know if they want to return to in-person learning. Elementary and middle school students, some of whom started going back to classrooms at the beginning of March, also have another chance to select high hybrid learning for the fourth quarter. Other districts, including some suburban districts around Chicago, as well as New York City public schools, have also set high school return dates throughout March and April. At a community forum on reopening high schools held last week, district officials laid out school safety plans and shared strategies to engage high school students. The district safety plan will include a contact tracing plan led by a newly hired team working at the district level and random testing of students at schools in some of the city's zip codes hit hardest by COVID-19. A New York-based real estate firm, Vista Property Group, paid nearly $32 million in two transactions over the past week for properties at 400 and 401 North Morgan Street, just a block north of Google's Midwest headquarters in Fulton Market. Reporter Danny Ecker is covering the story in detail at chicagobusiness.com. If you're looking for a sign that Fulton Market is heading for a nice post-pandemic rebound, this is definitely one. Uh, you've got an investor paying a premium for one stabilized property and one potential development site on a bet that a lot of the projects that have been proposed in the neighborhood will in fact come to fruition and fill with tenants. The question for the past year was, will properties in Fulton Market still trade for the highest prices per pound in the city, so to speak, if there is severe deterioration in the rents they can charge because there's so much more vacant space downtown and companies potentially don't need as much office space. We still don't know the answer to that, but deals like this one are encouraging for landlords in Fulton Market. And by the way, this will probably go down as one of the most lucrative repositionings of a Fulton Market property. Mark Bushala bought 401 North Morgan six months before Google said they were going to come to the neighborhood. That, of course, changed everything about the area. And a little more than eight years later, here's one of the best examples of what's happened to property values there. The Fulton Market properties aren't the first big bets that Vista has made on Chicago during the pandemic. The firm recently broke ground on a 15-story office building on the 600 block of West Randolph in the West Loop after landing a $31 million construction loan. AbbVie reportedly is in talks to sell the portfolio of women's health drugs that it acquired last year through its $63 billion acquisition of Allergan. Reuters reported that the North Chicago-based drug maker is looking to sell the roughly $5 billion portfolio, which includes the oral contraceptive Loloestrin. Reuters reports that CVC Capital Partners is interested in buying AbbVie's women's health portfolio. The private equity firm in 2018 acquired Teva Pharmaceuticals' women's health assets. Just about two weeks before the first pitch of the season, the Chicago Cubs have already tried unsuccessfully to force an injured fan into arbitration. 
and the ruling could undermine a practice that teams use to avoid litigation. In a unanimous decision issued this week, an Illinois state appeals court upheld a trial court decision allowing a lawsuit by the fan to go forward. The court ruled that the arbitration provision, which is in small type on the back of a ticket that refers the holder to a web page with more information, was, quote, so difficult to find, read, or understand that the fan couldn't have known what she was agreeing to. After a rash of fan injuries in recent years, MLB franchises have put in protective netting, but that hasn't prevented a new batch of legal claims from injured fans who claim that the effort isn't good enough, challenging the century-old so-called baseball rule that fans assume risk by attending a game. Data on fan injuries from errant balls and bats in baseball stadiums are difficult to obtain, but a Bloomberg News analysis in 2014 put the number at an average of 1,750 per year. Teams began extending safety nets in 2015 after a number of serious injuries. Find a copy of the court ruling and more detail on this story at chicagobusiness.com. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.